Anyone claiming that America's economy is in decline is peddling fiction. I've abandoned free market principles to save the free market system. But we have to pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. Raising the debt ceiling does not increase our debt. It does not somehow promote profligacy. I know words. I have the best words. Nobody knows the system better than me, which is why I alone can fix it. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to a brand new episode of Pedalic Fiction. And I am your host, the voice and soul of so-called fiction, Johnny Profita, broadcasting once again deep behind enemy lines here in the Windy City. And it's going to be the last episode of the year, last episode of the decade. I hope everyone had a very Merry Christmas and a happy Hanukkah, and your holiday season is going well. I had a great Christmas as usual. I went to Milwaukee to visit my parents live up there, and one of my sisters and my other two sisters come in from the West Coast, and we eat, and we drink, and we be merry for a couple days, as merry as you can, I guess, when it comes to family, and um, have a good time, eat very well. Of course, I'm always slaving away in the kitchen. I got to prepare a lot of the a lot of the main courses for the family. I've sort of assumed that role along the holiday season. But uh, made a prime rib, a prime prime rib, which I don't think I've I know if I've ever had a prime cut of prime rib. I think we usually do choice. And you know what? I gotta say, I didn't really notice much of a difference. A negligible difference, I would say. As long as you cook the prime rib properly, and I will get into that in a second, I, I, the difference between choice and prime, I, I don't think justifies the extra uh, like $10 a pound or whatever it comes to. Um, but anyway, reverse sear for the prime rib, I think, is the best option. I almost sous vide it. Thing is, I've heard a couple of people complain about the texture of the of the beef when you sous vide it. The other thing is this roast was just so big it was nine pounds. Because we had uh what do we have eight people eating, something like that. So it was a it was probably too big for me to sous vide even if I wanted to. Went with the reverse sear again. And that is well I start with a dry brine. Okay. So I rub the beef down with salt, pepper, a little bit of garlic powder. You can use any kind of seasoning you want, but you gotta use a lot of salt. And man, I, I can't, <laughs> I, I think one year I, I brined it too long. They say you can do it up to four days. And I think I did it for three days. And that was borderline too salty. for me. But this year I did about 36 hours and I think it could have gone longer. So I'm starting to zero in on a 48 hour dry brine uncovered in the fridge and that dry brine allows the salt to sort of pen- penetrate into the meat, tenderizes it, flavorizes it, and then the outside of the roast, since it's it, it's uncovered in the fridge, it gets uh, it it dries out, which helps you get a really good sear, and it just becomes flavor town. And then you reverse sear it in the oven, which means you start at a really low temperature, as low as your oven will go. And you let that sit in there for about six hours, maybe five hours. I think I was done about five hours. Depends on what temperature your oven's at. But, you know, 200 degrees lower if you can maintain it would be great. And that will give you a perfect medium rare all the way through if you pull it out around 128, 130 degrees. I wouldn't go higher than 130 in the center. And then you can let that rest for up to an hour and a half. Okay. And that's actually really helpful when you're doing a lot of these holiday parties because not only does the the roast take up the oven for five hours, but it helps you to just get that out of the way and then you have an hour and a half to prepare 
anything else that you need for the dinner. And then just before you're ready to eat, you throw that roast back in the oven at the hottest possible temperature. Your oven will get 550, 600 if it'll go that high. And you let that crisp up that outer layer for about 10 minutes. And uh, then you're good to go. Once it looks golden brown and delicious on the outside, you can pull it and serve it right away. Anyway, I did that. I made some fresh pasta one night, some scallops, and um, we actually went out to eat. Not on Christmas Eve, I think the day before. For, and we had the uh, Feast of the Seven Fishes, which is how Italians traditionally celebrate Christmas Eve. And, you, and the idea is that you're going to have seven different types of seafood. We had a, I had a really nice walleye there, had some calamari, some mussels, some uh, lobster. Oh, what else? We had a bouillabaisse, so there was all kinds of stuff in there. Sh- uh, shrimp and um, scallops, clams, some other white fish. Might have been tilapia, I don't know. Crushed it. Yes, I definitely crushed it this year. And having that roast done an hour and a half before everything else really helped with the stress of the day. Anyway, this is not usually a cooking podcast. I generally talk about politics and current events and some economics. But it is the last, we're winding down the year here. This is uh, December 30th. So, you know, you always got to take a little time at the end of the year, reflect on the past year. This is actually the end of a decade. The end of the 2010s, we are going into the 2020s, and I gotta say, it's been a pretty interesting last decade. That's sort of what I wanted to talk about, and I do have to be careful here, because I don't want this to get too depressing and downplay a lot of the progress that's been made uh, over the last 10 years across the globe, because there have been tremendous Uh, advancements in terms of civilization, in terms of pulling billions of people out of poverty. If you look at all of the metrics on how we measure people's economic well-being, standard of living, you know, the poverty rate, uh, how much money people are living on per day, all of these measurements of, of, of advancing civilization... They've all gone up drastically over the last 10 years, more so in developing countries, which is very encouraging. Places that we're living on a dollar a day, two dollars a day, eight dollars a day, they're drastically increasing their standard of living. And the poverty rate has been has gone down to like something like seven percent of the world is now considered to live in abject poverty. So there have been some tremendous advancements over the last 10 years alone and and just sort of in the span of my lifetime. Uh, we have come a long way as a world to to getting everybody out of what was historically the norm, uh, living hand to mouth on uh, the equivalent of a dollar a day if you were lucky. And um, I think it's important to sort of keep that all in perspective because the route I'm going to go on over the next 30 minutes or so is going to be pretty depressing, I think, for a lot of you. So I don't want to paint this dismal picture that there's no hope left for society or anything like that. And you're certainly going to have everyone who's a Republican, everyone who supports Donald Trump, trying to tell you how great everything is. And they have the highest level of optimism. You know, People are poised for this market to just explode, and everybody's, uh, everybody sees green pastures ahead. And then on the Democratic side, you're going to hear them continue to talk about how everything's a disaster, healthcare is a disaster, the environment's a disaster, we have 12 years left to live, uh, all these problems. Everyone's in, you know, everyone's struggling. Nobody can get ahead. Everything's terrible. I don't necessarily think either of those are right. I think the Democrats are closer to being right about the the fiscal situation of Americans, but it's for all the wrong reasons. It's for every everything that they think is causing it, they're wrong about. And everything that they think is going to alleviate these problems, they're wrong about. They just happen to be right because Republicans are in power and therefore everything has to be terrible. When in reality, it doesn't matter who's in power. Uh, either one of these parties is in power because our, our government's totally out of control and they have dug us into such a deep financial hole 
that there's no easy way out of this. So I just, I wanted to at least uh, pay lip service to some of the good things that have taken place over the last 10 years. There's been a lot of wealth created uh, there in places like China, um, India, uh, even Latin America, the, the poverty and Africa, the poverty rates have gone way down and there's still a long way to go. But people are, are there's been real advancement in, in the lives of, of billions of people that, that are major steps. It, you know, it, it doesn't seem like much to us because whether or not you, you want to uh, think about it this way, if you live in America, even if you're making the federal minimum wage, you are in the 1% of the globe. And I think it's important to keep that in perspective. And historically speaking, we are all living better than 99.9% of people that came before us. So we live in the most prosperous time uh, to be alive. And, and things are pretty good. Even when they're bad, things are still pretty good. And it's something like 1,700 people in America are becoming millionaires every day. 1,500, 1,700, something like that. Every single day. These are new money millionaires. So there is a lot of potential here. There's a lot of growth to be had. There's a lot of wealth to be created. So with that in mind, as I look back over this decade, and I was sort of thinking about you know, things that have happened, and I was reminded of this book that I read a while ago, and hopefully I can do justice to explaining it a little bit. It's called The Fourth Turning. And as I sat down to think about what I wanted to talk about this episode and sort of reflect on the last decade or so, I just couldn't help but wonder, you know, this, this whole fourth turning thing has sort of been in the back of my mind since I read this book. And I was like, oh, I wonder, wonder where we are with that whole fourth turning thing. And that got me to think more and more about the book and, and just sort of how things have played out and whether or not there's any validity to this guy's thesis. And basically, for anybody not familiar with the book, the idea is that there's this pattern that's emerged throughout history. So over the last maybe 500 years or so, society has entered a new era, or he calls it a turning, a new turning, every 20, 25 years. And I think it averages out to about 22 years by his count. And at the start of each turning or each new era, people tend to change how they feel about the culture and how they feel about each other and the nation and just the future of the country. And each one of these turnings come in cycles of four. So the entire cycle is a, about the lifespan of a person, of, of one, you know, 80 to 100 years, something like that. And, you know, it kind of makes sense just sort of intuitively that every hundred years or so or every the lifespan of one person, there's sort of this new cycle that begins because it's just long enough for all of us to sort of forget what has happened over the last hundred years, right? All those people that, that learn those lessons from history, they're all gone. And we have this new generation that, that has a different take on things. And that's going to see things in a different light. And they're going to do things differently, usually make the same mistakes as those people that just died off. And then every hundred years or so, uh, we just keep repeating the same cycle of behavior. Kind of interesting to think about. And so within that 80 to 100 years, you have four turnings. Okay. And the first one, the first turning that kicks off the four, the cycle of four is called the high period. And this is an upbeat era of strengthening institutions and weakening individualism when a new civil order implants and the old values regime decays. This is an excerpt from the book, just so you know. Um, the second turning is an awakening, a passionate era of spiritual upheaval when the civic order comes under attack from a new values regime. The third turning is what's deemed an unraveling period a downcast era of strengthening individualism and weakening institutions when the old civic order decays and the new value regime implants. And the fourth turning is a crisis. It's a decisive era of secular upheaval when the values regime propels the replacement of the old civic order with a new one. And so if you just want to go back over the last cycle, 
the author has marked the first turning of this cycle. He dates it back to the um, Truman, Eisenhower, Kennedy presidencies. That's sort of the span. That's sort of the beginning of the the most recent cycle. So as World War II wound down, we entered into this new high period, upbeat, strengthening institutions. The second turning he has as basically like the mid-60s to the early to mid-80s, right before John F. Kennedy was assassinated and then all the way through about to the year I was born, not call it 1984. And so you get an era of like personal liberation and cross-cultural divide and, you know, all the, uh, you know, the revolution of the 60s, you know, that sort of played out over that 25-year period, 20, 25-year period. And the third turning was from around Reagan's presidency up until the early 2000s, right? I think he has it ending around 2008, if I remember correctly. I, I don't know if I would if I would do it there or 2001 with September 11th, somewhere in, in, you know, pick one of those two days. I don't know. I, like, that's one of the things with the, these kinds of books. You can kind of just, hindsight's always twenty twenty, so you can always find, like, a historical event that you could point to that matches up with the time span perfectly, you know? And he's like, oh, well, this is a major turning point. It's like, well, how did you pick 2008 versus 2001? Right. Because, I mean, to me, there's sort of like a, a pre 9-11 United States and a post 9-11 United States. And I, I don't know if maybe 2008 is just part of that fourth turning or kicks off the fourth turning. I, I mean, it seems kind of arbitrary how you decide. But anyway, that the, the culture wars that have been sort of playing out. I don't think anybody would deny that there's been a major mood shift in America in, in the 21st century, right? But if we go by the author's timing, right, like the third turning culminated with the 2008 financial collapse, which ushered in the crisis period, the crisis turning period that started with Barack Obama's presidency. So he presided over the first eight years or about a third of what this whole crisis period is supposed to be and within each turning period. So within this fourth turning, there are three or four different phases that we're supposed to go through. So there's always, there's like cycles within cycles. It's, I I hope I'm not confusing anybody because it's kind of hard to explain if you haven't read the book, but you have, so you have the big, the big cycle, right? Which is there's a there's a new era every 20 to 25 years. And then within each of those 20 to 25 year periods, there are different phases that that are supposed to play out within that 20 to 25 year period. And so he has the catalyst being the 2008 financial crisis that changes everything. People's attitudes, their outlook on the future all, all of a sudden turns very dismal. If you remember, like entire generations of people suddenly realized that they aren't going to live as prosperously as the generation before. You know, you kind of hear this all the time. Like, oh, millennials are going to be the first generation that doesn't outperform their parents. Like they're not going to be more successful than their parents were on average. Right. And then you had all those older, that baby boomer generation. A lot of those people had their wealth cut in half in that financial crisis because all of their savings and every all their retirement funds, their 401ks were all tied up in the market that got cut in half. And to my knowledge, you know, I don't think there's been a generation that hasn't outperformed the generation before financially. Um, usually, at least in America, each generation surpasses the previous one. So anyway, that the 2008 financial crisis was the first phase of the fourth turning, right? And so there are supposed to be three other phases that need to play out. I think the next one he calls a regeneracy. And this is where sort of distrust in institutions reaches a low point, And then the people begin to rally around something collectively. It could be a leader uh, or some sort of movement that brings everyone together 
they all find some leader or idea that they can put their faith in, rally behind, and sort of reestablish new institutions that can make sense to them again. Since all of, all of the, the third turning and the, the, crisis, the, the kickoff of the crisis period is sort of when those institutions crumble. Now, I have a hard time envisioning this ever happening. I don't I don't know if we can have a regeneracy anymore in America. First of all, I don't think we're anywhere near the low point where we've bottom, bottomed out in terms of our distrust of mainstream media, corporate press, all these institutions. Congress has a really low approval rating. I don't think we've bottomed out yet. I, th- I think there's a long way to go. There's a long way to fall in terms of that. And we're, we're so far gone. And the media has done such a bad job. I can't imagine a large portion of the population ever trusting the corporate press again. They've lied us into wars, countless wars. They're still doing it. These stories that they pick, they have their agenda, and they just keep getting busted. They just keep getting busted peddling actual fiction. I don't think there's any coming back from that. After Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, the chemical attack in Syria, that turned out to be bullshit. They lied to us about Afghanistan. They lied to us about the Vietnam War. I mean, they get all these stories wrong. Russia collusion. Yeah, Donald Trump's a Russian operative. Quid pro quo. Uh, I don't think there's anything any coming back from this. But again, maybe I'm just too close to this, too like ensconced in all this political nonsense to see any potential for this. But I mean, clearly the the leader that the people are going to rally behind that's going to unite reunite the country and usher in this new era of you know, collectiveness and kumbaya whatever clearly it's not going to be Donald Trump clearly it's not going to be any of these insane democratic uh, politicians that are running against him in this election should he lose a- at this point i just don't see it happening i don't see that person existing but even the, the person to follow Donald Trump, let's say he gets elected or she gets elected. I mean, this unraveling period has been so disruptive. This third phase of the, of the cycle has been so disruptive to the culture and the fabric of America that I don't see any real path toward reconciliation between the left and the right. I think we're in the last throes of this experiment in America and maybe that coincides with the fourth turning. But I think at some point, that fourth turning will have to be the last one. At least within the, the, the America that we know today. I mean, America's like a bad marriage, okay? We need to break up. We have half the country that believes the other 50% are racist, deplorable Nazis that need to be punched in the face. And then we have 50% of the country that believes the other half are insane socialists hell-bent on taking their guns, which, of course, they directly correlate with freedom, that want to usher in this era of democratic socialism, a socialist regime that's going to end in famine, destruction, and the deaths of millions of people. Obviously, these are kind of the broad strokes. But even on the smaller, isolated issues, these two groups of people aren't going to be able to peaceably coexist. I mean, the odds of turning a socialist into a capitalist or vice versa is slim to none. So how is this going to play out economically when every four to eight years we fight politically over which group will have control over the country? I mean, even though Republicans are essentially just a different type of socialist, they're, they're still socialists, so are the Democrats. But, I mean, you get the idea. Take abortion, right? Half the country thinks in some weird way that abortion is about women's reproductive rights, right? And the other half believes you're murdering babies when you get an abortion. I mean, there isn't a lot of whole, uh, middle ground there for them to agree on, right? You've got people thinking that there are 72 genders and it's perfectly acceptable to give your four-year-old hormone treatments because their son apparently believes he's a princess all of a sudden. We, we've seen the country move extremely far left over the last decade, and the movement appears to be accelerating. And I know I've talked about this on the show before, but just think back to 10 years ago. 
when Barack Obama was president, even eight years ago, six years ago, there were positions that he had when he was first running that would get you like thrown out of the Democratic Party. You would be unelectable if you held the same positions Barack Obama did on issues like gay marriage or how many genders there are or any of these cultural things. They've really kicked it into high gear here. And it just it seems to be accelerating faster and faster. And the divide between the, the two halves of the country just keeps getting bigger and bigger. And so we've got a little less than half the country that wants to go basically full-blown socialism, right? They want the government to take care of everything. And then you have the other half of the country, some of which has been pulled very far left as a result. You know, that Overton window has just kind of completely shifted. And uh, positions that Democrats had... 10 years ago are now positions that Republicans support, which goes back to that whole idea that conservatives are just progressives driving the speed limit, right? That everything that was on the far left agenda 10 years ago is currently accepted by the mainstream right wing of the, of the political spectrum. And then within that half uh, on the right, you also have that reactionary movement which has taken people in the polar opposite direction, and you've seen the rise of the alt-right. That, that's been a direct result of the rise of like this um, sort of militant left wing of the Democratic Party. And I just don't see how all of these people can coalesce behind one leader or some sort of movement anytime soon. I mean, their values are just so far apart. They're completely different people. They're way too far apart. How are social justice warriors going to find common ground with the alt-right? I mean, they're diametrically opposed, philosophically. How are, how are they going to find common ground? How is somebody going to unite those two groups of people? How are all these people that have caught Trump derangement syndrome going to get along with those of us that haven't gone completely insane? An extremely volatile politics, right? An extremely extreme volatility in politics is one of the traits of that fourth turning cycle. It's a very it's supposed to be a very tumultuous period. There there are strong disagreements, violent protests, upheaval. These are all characteristics of what um, that author William Strauss has deemed the fourth turning. So there's certainly if you look around the culture, if you look around the political atmosphere, the economic atmosphere, I think there is a lot of evidence to support the fact that we could be in this fourth turning period that this guy writes about. The only possible way I see that we can unite people on both sides of the political spectrum, all of these like uh, crazy social justice warriors, all of these lunatics on the alt-right, and everybody in between, the only possible way is to embrace libertarianism. The only way that we could possibly unite people is if we can get to a point where all of these people in the country who despise one another start seeing the virtues of libertarian philosophy. And I always thought this was one of the better selling points of libertarianism, is that in a libertarian society, particularly in the voluntarist, anarcho-capitalist society that I constantly advocate for, all of these people and their ideas can coexist because they aren't in constant conflict with each other over which group is going to control the other because there is no controlling government, right? You see, in Ancapistan, if you want to be a socialist and you want to get together with all of the other socialists and pool your resources together and carve out a plot of land for your commune and you want to begin your socialist utopia as you see it, you can do that. You can absolutely do that. You just can't force your beliefs and your way of life onto anyone else against their will. Okay, so And if you're an alt-right maniac that has this in-group preference and you only want to live in a society of white people or whatever it is, you can do that too. Just like the socialists can do what they want to do. Acquire some private property, invite only like-minded white people to live there, and you guys can have your community made up of only white, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, whatever. 
Hey, you, you just can't force that crap on the rest of us. Okay, and you can't aggress against people of color, and you can't aggress against peaceful people. And even though the majority of us, uh, myself included, would completely disagree with your way of life and your cultural outlook and, you know, whatever, be it white supremacy or democratic socialism, whatever your retarded belief system is, right? As long as you aren't aggressing against other peaceful people and you're minding your own business and you're not infringing on the natural rights of other people, I will tolerate your existence. But then again, it works both ways. And you have to, you'll have to tolerate mine in the same way that I tolerate yours. You might not agree with it. It might not be what you choose for yourself or, or the people that you uh, love or whatever. But as long as nobody's hurting anybody, as long as nobody's infringing on the rights of others, who cares? Who cares? Go let those alt-right idiots start their own little retarded society. Uh, they're not, as long as they're not hurting anybody, what difference does it make? A democratic socialist? If you want to start a bunch of companies that are owned by the, the workers and the people control the means of production or whatever, whatever political philosophy, economic philosophy you want, you can go ahead and do that. There's nothing stopping you from doing that in a libertarian society. And I always thought that was a great selling point for the philosophy. Like, listen, whatever you want to do, you can do it. It just has to be voluntary. So if you want people to pay 70% of their income to support your cause or whatever, that's fine. You can do that. It just all has to be voluntary. Yeah, if, if you could... You can have a state, you can have a, a geographic area where you impose those types of rules on people, and anybody that wants to be part of that society can do it. You can have all the programs you want, uh, free school, Medicare for all, you name at the whole democratic platform. You can do that. You just have to do it within your own little society, and people are free to leave <laughs> when they don't like it. They don't have to join that part of your society. But apparently nobody else finds that very compelling, at least outside of the 3% of, of people or so that are libertarians. But to me, it's why it's the only belief system, the only way of organizing society around the principles of the individual, not the collective, around peace, tolerance, free and voluntary markets, and limited to no government at all. That's the only possible way to organize society that doesn't result in this tumultuous conflict all the time and doesn't lead to the point where we are now where I don't see how the, the two sides can reconcile. It's the only way that this fourth turning produces the start of a next hundred-year cycle that begins with a high period. But we are so far away from that even becoming the slightest glimmer of a possibility that more than 3% of the people in the country embrace libertarianism. It's almost not even worth talking about if it wasn't so important. And I think no matter how you look at it, the last 10 years has been a horrible decade for freedom, a horrible decade for free markets, a horrible decade for libertarian ideas. I mean, we, we started the decade. We had Ron Paul running for president, and people were chanting, end the Fed, at his rallies. Regular everyday Americans were talking about the Federal Reserve. And we went from that to the largest explosion in the size and scope of the federal government that the world has ever seen, culminating in the election of Donald Trump, okay, who instead of getting his supporters to chant, end the Fed, all he's doing is berating the Federal Reserve, the Fed chairman, to increase their market interventions, to increase and extend all the awful monetary policies of cheap money and 0% interest rates. I mean, that's what they're chanting for now. We're going in the opposite direction. I think people sometimes forget how much momentum the, the whole liberty movement had under Ron Paul in, say, 2012. We were, we were gaining some steam. There were high hopes in 2016, and um, it just completely fell off the rails. And all of these problems that, that people are starting to recognize in society, particularly on the Democratic side when they talk about income inequality and how the middle class is shrinking and how it's impossible for anybody to get ahead now without a government handout, 
Well, that's all a result of what the Federal Reserve has been doing for the last 10 years. Okay, I go the last 20 years because it was their artificially low interest rates that caused the 2008 economic collapse. And I've gone into that in previous episodes. I don't have time to go over it in detail today. But what the reason why people were chanting and the Fed is because they enable the government to do everything that it's doing right now that that we don't like, that's causing all of these problems. And what they've been doing is essentially creating money out of thin air, creating currency out of thin air, okay? And they hand it out to its member banks, all these banks that make up the Federal Reserve, all their members, and a lot of that easy money that, that goes to those banks gets put into the stock market, which mostly benefits those at the, the top of the economic pyramid that own the most uh, global corporations and stocks and anybody who has assets. All these rich people, all these people who were wealthy prior to 2008, everybody that's in the market, they've seen an explosion in their wealth over the last 10 years because they've been pumping trillions of dollars into the equity markets. But it's not real. None of it's real. It's all an illusion. And those people will see those paper profits evaporate in the next uh, financial collapse. But that's why the message of, oh, the rich get richer, the poor can't get ahead, that's why it resonates with so many people. It's because of this reckless Federal Reserve monetary policy. Over 50% of Americans have no money in the stock market. So a lot of people are missing out on this phony bubble that the Federal Reserve has been pumping up. And anyway, I'm getting way off track here. But my, my point is that at the beginning of the decade, there was momentum to try to change that, to try to turn that around. And it was starting to spill out into the mainstream of America. We had the Tea Party movement, which brought you know people like Rand Paul into Congress and Justin Amash and I think Thomas Massey. Uh, we saw a surge in people who were interested in Austrian economics and libertarian philosophy. It's about the time where I myself became a libertarian. And I was specifically driven to it because of that 2008 financial collapse. That's what sparked my whole interest in this economic cycle. And that's how I found the Austrian theory of the business cycle. I looked around at all the people who were talking, who were trying to explain what just went down and the Austrians had been explaining it for the last eight years. <laughs> like, they had been talking about this, exactly what was going to happen, how it would play out, the government's reaction to it. They were right about everything. But that's, n- none of that turned up in the commission that the federal government uh, put up to figure out what caused the 2008 financial collapse. They blamed the whole thing on like a, a little piece of financial regulation getting rolled back that had nothing to do with anything. Excessive greed, right? And the, and the repeal of Glass-Steagall, which had literally nothing to do with anything. But anyway, around that time, I, I think that people were, were receptive to these ideas. People were becoming aware of this. And that all just died. It, it all just disappeared. It evaporated in the blink of an eye. And we've started going in the opposite direction. Donald Trump wants to double down on those reckless policies of the Fed that have been destroying the economy uh, of not just the country, but the world. And all the key measurements of of liberty, of libertarianism, uh, are going the wrong direction. We've seen an explosion in the size of government, particularly in the last 10 years. Uh, Barack Obama doubled the national debt. Donald Trump, if he's in there for that long, will will double it, almost double it again. He's growing the size of government at a faster rate than Barack Obama did in terms of spending. He just signed a $1.3 trillion spending bill, something like that, $730 billion for the military-industrial complex. The government is taking over huge portions of the economy in areas like health care, and there's ever-increasing intervention into other areas where it's going to get to the point where government screws everything up so badly that now the only solution is for the government to just take total control of that sector. That's how they've been operating, right? They intervene in the healthcare industry. They take over a larger and larger portion of it. They destroy any market forces that allow that industry to function properly. And then they blame all these failures of government intervention 
on free markets and free market principles that I always talk about. And then they prescribe more government intervention as the solution that we need. So now they can't just um, handle a small portion of it or they can't just have this option here, a government option. We need Medicare for all. Uh, no, no other way around it, right? And after we destroy the value of a college degree and education in general, after they single-handedly drove the cost of a degree to astronomical levels through their intervention and loan programs, well, now the government must provide free education to everyone. And the financial industry isn't far off. With all the quantitative easing that we just talked about and the Federal Reserve's monetary policy that's blown up housing bubbles, bubbles in the stock market, bubbles in the bond market, and has funneled billions of dollars created out of thin air into these big banks and the fat cats on Wall Street, well, pretty soon the government will have to intervene once and for all and just take over the financial industry completely as well. If not outright, then simply through excessive rules and regulations and taxation and things like that. And you're starting to see that play out with the wealth tax proposals and things like that from Elizabeth Warren. So, I mean, we are far closer to an era of government institutions replacing everything, of every problem having a government solution, than we are to an era of rolling back government, of shrinking the size and the power of the federal government. I don't even see how that's possible at this point with where we are culturally. And as far as the fourth turning is concerned, the crisis period, uh, make no mistake about it, we are absolutely heading for a crisis. There, there is no doubt about that. The seeds of this crisis have been sowing for decades. And, and don't, despite what everyone in the mainstream media, the corporate press will tell you that nobody could have seen this coming or something like that, there will be a day of reckoning. Libertarians have seen this coming. They've been predicting it. It's obvious to see. If you have an understanding of basic economics and a little historical perspective, it's not a question of if there will be a financial collapse at this point. It's when, and that's the big question. When's it going to happen? And when it does, my guess is that will be what's used as the defining moment, uh, the culmination of this fourth turning that William Sprouse is always talking about. And unfortunately, due to our proclivity to learn all the wrong lessons from history, to allow the government and all the educational establishments to incorrectly define what causes the problems, like they did with the financial collapse in 2008, like they've done with the Great Depression, going all the way back to the Great Depression, all the textbooks got that wrong. So unfortunately, the next financial crisis, as far as I'm concerned, is going to be the catalyst for a complete government takeover of anything that's left, <laughs> anything that any uh, semblance of freedom that we still have. This next collapse will, or this next crisis, I should call it a crisis, right? This next crisis will be the end of that. When this all blows up, the last 40 or 50 years of government intervention finally takes us to the brink of extinction as a country, and the government propaganda kicks into high gear like it did in 2008, and they are able to convince large groups of American people that all of the problems that they're experiencing right now were caused by these big, greedy corporations and unfettered capitalism and excessive greed and blah, 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 blah. And the people will be convinced that government is the answer. Government is the answer to all their problems. And they will coalesce around the state and, and begin to fully embrace socialism. And I don't know, maybe that will constitute the regeneracy phase of the fourth turning when everybody comes together around the idea of democratic socialism. I don't know. That scenario just seems highly likely to me at, at this point. A financial crisis becomes a catalyst to, that ushers in the final era of democratic socialism that will bring about the, the total and final destruction of America as we know it. Right? That would constitute what this author refers to as the climax crisis phase of the fourth turning. Because remember, within each turning, there's four different phases, and that would in theory be followed by what's 
called the resolution phase where all the treaties are signed and all these deals are struck and a post-crisis order comes about. Now, if the new post-crisis order we come up with is democratic socialism, which seems far more likely to me than any anything libertarian in nature, then that, as far as I'm concerned, will be it for America. The party will be over. I mean, most full-blown socialist experiments uh, completely collapse within 10 to 20 years. That, that's about how long it takes for them to squander all the wealth that they've been building up over generations. But you see, we've already squandered all of our wealth. We've already squandered it on our path towards socialism. Uh, we, we've just taken a slower path. So I don't know how much longer it will take for the full-blown socialism to run its course. If you subscribe to these theories of the fourth turning, this is all supposed to happen by 2030, 2035, something like that. So, with all of that in mind, my predictions for the upcoming decade, and I do hope I'm wrong about these. Unfortunately, that's rarely the case. But here, here's what's going to happen as far as I see it, assuming that the next recession doesn't hit before the next election, which is not guaranteed by any stretch of the imagination. We're starting to get a lot of poor economic data coming through. I, I just saw today that Chicago uh, PMI, which is the uh, Purchasing Managers Index, it's sort of a measure of the manufacturing sector in the Chicago land area, it's been in contraction for four straight months now. They come up with these numbers. Above 50 is not in contraction, and below 50, the sector is contracting, meaning we're not manufacturing as much as we used to. The Dallas Fed survey on manufacturing outlook also disappointed, and it's been in contraction for the third straight month. Seven months out of this year, it's been contracting. Pending home sales were down for three straight months, or uh, four-month lows. I, I just saw that. So there, there's a lot of uh, questionable economic data coming out that suggests that we might already be in a recession, at least as far as certain sectors of the economy are concerned. Uh, the technical definition for a recession is back-to-back -back quarters of contraction, of negative growth. And we're already starting to see a lot of that in areas like manufacturing. But anyway, assuming that the next recession doesn't technically hit before the election, I think Donald Trump will get elected. And shortly after that, the financial day of reckoning will hit. And all of these problems that we've been fooling ourselves into thinking either weren't problems at all or they were somehow so much farther off down the road that we didn't need to worry about them, all of these problems like the, the bankrupt state and local pension funds, the bankrupt state and local governments, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, the $23 trillion national debt, the stock market bubble, the bond market bubble. All of this stuff is going to hit the fan at the same time because it's all just debt. It's all just one big debt bubble. And instead of doing the honest thing and leveling with the American people, defaulting on our debt obligations, I see politicians being the dishonest, spineless cowards that they are, they will do the dishonest thing. They will use the Federal Reserve to backstop the stock market. They will pump trillions of dollars into circulation, as they have been. They'll just kick it up into high gear in order to stimulate the economy out of a recession, which is exactly the opposite of what we want them to be doing. The recession is actually the cure for our economic woes. The bubbles, all of this phony growth that seems awesome at the time, that's the disease. The recession is the medicine that we need to take to clear out all the crap that's been building up for decades. But that's not what they'll do. They'll inflate the debt away and destroy what's left of the purchasing power of the dollar. Donald Trump and the Republicans, of course, and all the rhetoric that Republicans pay lip service to, of free market capitalism, deregulation, small government, all these things that they talk about but never actually do, those will be what's blamed for the economic problems. 
I mean, I, all these all these politicians will come out and be like, "See, this is what we get when we give tax cuts to the rich, and uh, the Republicans deregulate, and they take out the EPA, and they they slash government." Even though none of that stuff really happened, except tax cuts, right? You can't have tax cuts and increased spending, and and not expect problems to arise from that. That's not the tax cuts that are causing anything. It's the spending. That, that's spending us into the poorhouse. But so the, the Republicans will all be blamed for that, just like George Bush was, and they're going to lose the next election in a landslide to somebody like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who I think will probably be eligible for president at that point. God help us. And this recession or depression will be so bad that they could gain control of both houses, who knows, maybe even a supermajority, so that you can't even filibuster them, and we'll have full a full-blown socialist president at the helm, and over the next five to ten years, the United States will just completely fall. Call it the early 2030s if you want. Coincidentally, if you want to call it that, right in line with the, the dates of the fourth turning. I, I don't know. I mean, predicting these things in terms of timing is impossible particularly when it comes to economics. It's, economics is a, is a terrible predictor of when things are going to happen. You can, you can take a look at the economy and know what's going to happen eventually. You just never know when it's going to actually happen. As long as you're looking at it from the Austrian theory of the business cycle, which is the correct way to look at it. But these next 10 years are going to be, I think, a very decisive part of, if you want to call it a cycle or just in the life of America, the next 10 years, what happens and our response to it is going to determine a lot in terms of the, the direction of the country. And unfortunately, I don't see us heading in the right direction anytime soon. I look around at today in today's culture and, and just where the momentum of the country seems to be going, and it's all pointed in one way. And it's away from, from individual freedom. And the, the farther we go that way, the harder it's going to be to turn this ship around. And I hope there's a way to, to peacefully do that. And we don't have to go the Hong Kong route. Uh, they, they've been going on o- almost the entire year. These Hong Kong protests have they've been trying to get back some of their freedom. So hopefully we don't let it get to that point <laughs> But I don't see any way, at least right now, I don't see any indication that that's not where we're headed. So (laughs) I don't know. How's that for doom and gloom, right? And that's obviously the worst case scenario as far as I'm concerned. And I'm not trying to be a doom and gloomer at the end of the year or whatever, constantly preaching about how there's this imminent collapse coming. And it certainly doesn't have to play out that way. It doesn't have to play out the way I just described. It just seems entirely more plausible than any other scenario as far as I'm concerned. It's what I fear the way it will play out based on the society we have today. And it's one of the reasons I wanted to start this show so that I can try and reach people before all this stuff happens and teach them about why they are really going to happen and what caused all these problems we face as a nation, and what the solutions are to such problems, so as to minimize the human suffering that will inevitably result from the reckless government behavior we've been indulging in my entire life and going back generations before. All of these problems that we face today are the direct result of too much government, not too little government. And over the last decade especially, all we've seen is an explosion in the size and scope of government. It's a misdiagnosis of the problem. You see, politicians, who are the ones who have to solve all these problems for us, right? Well, obviously, they're going to see the, the problem as not them, right? They're the solution because they're the government. They're, that's what they're here for, right? So instead of correctly diagnosing the problem as too much government intervention, as the government getting too big... They, of course, see it as, well, we just need more government. We need more of this. We need to grow the size of government, grow the power of government, have them take over more things, even though that's just a a bigger dose of the drug that's killing us. And at this point, it's too late to avoid some sort of disaster. There is no easy way out of the mess that we've voted ourselves into. 
there is no pain-free way of getting rid, uh, getting out from under a $23 trillion in bonded debt. That's just an astronomical number. We can't do it. And then we, on top of that, we have hundreds of trillions of dollars in unfunded liabilities and Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, pension promises, all that stuff. So, you know, maybe it doesn't play out in the ultimate doomsday scenario, but there will be pain coming. There has to be. There will be a financial crisis. How we respond to it will determine whether or not we survive as a country and whether or not we prosper as a people. If we embrace more and more of what created the situation we find ourselves in, ever-increasing expansion of government, more government control over the economy, more government intervention in our lives, we're only going to exacerbate these problems. And when it's time to face the music, the pain's going to be that much worse. But if we can somehow find a way to return to the principles of libertarianism that built what was once the strongest, most prosperous country the world has ever seen, the ideas that I always talk about of individualism, voluntarism, peace, tolerance, of limited to no government, <laughs> free markets, right? A government so small that you can hardly even notice it. If instead of trying to stave off the pain of the next recession by flooding our system with morphine, by upping our dosage of monetary methadone, if instead of that we embrace the cure for the disease and we take the pain, we swallow that bitter-tasting medicine of massive financial restructuring, and we embrace free market principles, and we don't bail out those people that make bad decisions, we don't bail out the banks, and we don't bail out the government, we can turn this thing around. We could usher in a new era of prosperity, the likes of which none of us have ever seen. We can bring more wealth and more opportunity to more people than ever before. We've already used these ideas to pull billions of people out of abject poverty. We can pull several billion more back from the brink. But if, and only if, we understand how we got here, how wealth is created, what makes a nation prosperous, and we toss all these failed ideas of big government, government regulation and intervention in the economy, of government control of the means of production, of basically everything that our government is currently doing. We take those ideas and we toss them in the dustbin of history where they belong. And we can only do that if people like you continue to listen to this show, share these ideas, share the show. It's been a pretty wild past decade, but I think what's in store for us in the 20s will be exponentially crazier. But I'm actually personally cautiously optimistic about the next 10 years. For myself personally, it's the country as a whole that I fear for. Uh, there are always great fortunes made and lost in times of turmoil, which we're about to see. There are steps that we should all be taking to protect ourselves from the upcoming decade and position ourselves to be successful. The better position you are in as an individual, the better positioned you are to help other people. And there will be lots of people needing help over the next decade. Uh, make no mistake about that. And who knows? Maybe once they see how libertarians were right about everything and how we were able to find success in the lowest points of American history, maybe they'll start to listen to some of our ideas a little more, take us seriously. But it's up to us, you and I, to make sure we come out on the other side of this in a position of strength from which we can begin to affect change. And it starts, just like everything, with the individual. Let's position ourselves, now that you know how this is all going to play out, because I just told you, right? Let's position ourselves to be successful, to be the survivors and the thrivers of the next decade, and use that as a launching pad to spread freedom and liberty throughout the world. And guys, if you like the show today, do me a favor. Give me a five-star rating and review on iTunes. Share the show with your friends. You can follow me on Twitter at Pedal Fiction. 
And if you would like to donate to the show monetarily, you can go to pedalingfictionpodcast.com. I'm pretty excited about where this show is going to go next year. I have high hopes for it in 2020. Happy New Year, everybody. I will be back next year with a brand new episode. And until then, just remember to keep on pedaling that so-called fiction.